No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. The first story in our second coming and going swap places us in a New England suburb during the COVID-19 pandemic. A woman leaves her city life and is thrusted into the role of caretaker for her elderly parents where, much like the pandemic, there is no end in sight. Experiencing a role reversal with her stubborn father and carefree mother, our narrator comes face to face with her own fears, testing her faith and patience as she struggles to keep her loved ones safe. The Faith of Candy was written by Nancy Agabian and is read for us here by Charlotte Marchand. For this, our first virtual show, we also asked each storyteller that if we, the listeners, wished to summon them directly to our room, what three items might we place in a magic circle to do so? As you will hear, a wide variety of ingredients are needed to complete the spell. The first story of our second half of Coming and Going was written by Nancy Agabian. If we want to, I'm very excited to pull Nancy into the spotlight and to see what, what I need for a Nancy spell. Ooh. Um, so um, this is an oak leaf and it's, um, I love trees. They just make me feel peaceful and I like to take walks almost every day in the park and in the woods. These things are Maybe they look like alien spaceship or jellyfish, which that's fine. Could be either one, but it's popcorn because I really love popcorn. And this one is abstract. I didn't think I totally understood the directions, but I thought <laughs> love. My third item is love. And I thought, oh, I'll draw a picture of my mom and dad. So now, Kelly Jean, my mom and dad will have to come to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I need your mom as, your, as your third item to create the spell. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, with that, kicking off our second set of stories, here is The Fate of Candy, written by Nancy Agabian and read for us by Charlotte Marchand. The Faith of Candy. Man, I need the keys to the car. My father calls outside my bedroom door. I sigh, readying for a confrontation. It's early April, and my 90-year-old father, who is cognitively impaired, doesn't understand the new rules we face. What for, I ask. I need to go to Walgreens to get some snacks. Dad, you can't go. Why, he bellows suddenly, and with such force that my heart jumps and my nerves jangle. Dad, it's dangerous for you to go out because of the virus. Before I can tell him that Walgreens is the ground zero of sick people, he pulls out his wallet and holds it up to me in the darkness of the hallway. From my bedroom window, sunlight shines on half of his angry face his pointed nose and furrowed bushy eyebrows. 
I have a driver's license. It was renewed a couple of months ago. It doesn't have to do with that, I explain. There's an order for older people to stay at home because they will get very sick if they catch the virus. I've explained this before, but the information isn't sticking. A month into the quarantine, I've been noticing that my parents' cognitive abilities are more limited. Their lives aren't so different from before, but even the lack of a few healthcare providers interacting with them during the day and the loss of a few activities in the senior center during the week must be making those neural pathways more narrow or rigid. My father is on a rampage. I drop what I'm doing and find him in the living room rummaging through my mother's pocketbook. Thankfully, I hid all the car keys a couple of weeks ago. My mother doesn't seem to be bothered by my father's intrusion into her purse. Mom, did you ask dad to get you snacks? I want cookies, she says innocently. My mother started to lose her short-term memory four years ago. We were all surprised when my father followed suit a couple of years later. Now my mother's personality has transformed to be more playful and childlike, complementing her shrinking stature and her wider brown eyes. I've gotten used to the role reversal. I'll get you a cookie, I reply. As I open a kitchen cabinet to retrieve a sugar-free shortbread, my mother's on the verge of diabetes. I overhear my father asking why he can't have one. Who made her the Ayatollah? My American-born Armenian dad asks. I find the jab pretty funny, but I stifle a smile. After traveling every two weeks from New York to this Boston suburb for the past couple of years, I decided to move for a year to help transition my parents to receive more care. For a while, I questioned my decision, giving up my apartment, my job, my writing, and any chance to date. When the pandemic arrived, it removed most of my doubt. Here was a good reason to be here. Still, it would be nice to be appreciated as a caring daughter rather than compared to a Muslim fundamentalist dictator. A few days later, I'm reminded how stultifying it can be to have someone care for you. After three weeks alone with my parents 24-7, I'm on edge and desperately need a walk. But I can't get out of the door without my mother interrogating me. Where am I going? For how long? Sometimes her fears drop from her mind along with her other short-term memories and other times they burrow deeper. <clears throat> it's not uncommon for her to call me several times while I'm on a walk, warning me not to enter the park because it's desolate and unsafe. In reality, the park is populated with children at play, speed walking moms, and retirees strolling with their dogs. For a while, I showed her photos of the park to prove the absence of roving bands of hoodlums and rapists. It didn't help. So I've learned to lie, to save my mother from my distress. 
I tell her I'm walking around the neighborhood. Geriatric industrial workers have a name for this phenomena, a therapeutic fiblet. It makes deceiving your aged parents sound a lot nicer, especially when you dump them off at assisted living for eternity, claiming that it'll just be a short stay while their home is being redone. How I wish I had given myself permission to lie to my mother all the times in my life she expressed alarm. Riding my bike to the mall with friends at 12, driving across country after graduating from college at 22, traveling to Turkey in search of ancestral villages at 30, getting a Fulbright to Armenia at 38, all were met with, with urgent lobbying efforts to prevent me from leaving. Insistence that my decision-making was not just flawed, but foolish. Even at a young age, I knew her response had less to do with me and more with her fear. I argued vehemently and she always somehow came around, but on her own terms and not without more warnings and a few I told you so's. Did those arguments make her trauma buried deeper into her bones and muscles, hardening her brain tissue? Now though, I rashly know my father has dementia. My body still can't help be triggered by her mania, automatically irritated, physically caught in a codependent boomerang. When I arrive at the park, <clears throat> I disregard a new sign posted that it's closed due to COVID. For the past three weeks, it's been packed with millennials who have nowhere else to go outside their homes. Today, I have the empty park all to myself and breathe in the oasis filled with trees, light, and chirping birds. On the way back home, however, my mother's looping fears rise in me when I see a lone man with a dog. He's tall and I get a funny feeling that I shouldn't walk through the wooded part of the park. Lately, I've been noticing that I assume the worst about people who live here, that they're too stupid to follow safety precautions, that they will walk too close to me or cough in my direction. I remind myself that there are bad people everywhere. I often encountered them in New York City, where I lived for 20 years before I moved here. The fact that there are good people everywhere too comes to me at a delay as I head up our street. Has the stress of COVID and the threat that it will take my parents away from me turn me into my fearful mother? I'm about five houses from my parents' house when I notice a car around the turn. It's a deep purple, almost black. Maybe it's the light, but it appears to be my father's car, his scion. Before the numerals on the license plate can register, I see my father behind the wheel in his khaki jacket and baseball cap. In an instant, he's past me. I turn around and wave both arms like a deranged flight controller on the tarmac. He doesn't stop. 
God damn it. My father has escaped the quarantine. The rest of the walk home is a blur. I try my best not to panic. Where's dad, I asked my mother, sitting in her living room chair. I think he went to the candy store on Route 1 that sells ice cream. But only essential services are open, so Patwell's must be closed. I'm not sure where my father could possibly go to retrieve whatever it is that she requested. Maybe to Big Y our corner grocery store, or Walmart just across from it on Route 1. It will be a disaster if he goes to either big box store crowded with throngs of germy people desperate for toilet paper. Rage overcomes me, heart racing, shallow breaths, tense spine. I've given up my life by moving here to this house to help you and you keep fucking everything up with your constant requests for food. My mother doesn't yell back. Something sinks in, perhaps the F word. I don't feel good about this outburst, but it seems significant, like tearing open a life-changing letter. I've admitted that I've moved here, which I have been aligning mostly to protect myself from possible criticism but also to shield my mother from possible shame for needing help. Months later, it will be clear the significance is only mine. My mother's brain won't retain that I've moved. Every day she will experience me as visiting from New York City. I drive up to the big Y and the eggplant scion is not in the parking lot. On the way to Walmart, I drive past home in case my father has returned. Lo and behold, he's in the driveway, getting out of the car. When I pull up, he looks my way, sees me behind the wheel, and gives me a shit-eking smirk. We managed to reach the front door at the same time. Where the fuck have you been, I asked, wielding the F word again, as if it will help. My father answers, to Patwell's to get sugar-free dark chocolate for your mother. I'm astonished Patwell's is open. How is candy essential? In a few moments, I call them up, explain what has happened, and ask if they maintain distancing with my father. I get into an argument with the owner over their decision to not wear masks. It's a question whether we should wear them, newly reveal that asymptomatic people can spread the disease. She said, the public health department said masks were unnecessary for their own protection. I tell her that my father is 90 years old and has dementia and congestive heart failure. This is who they need to protect. At dinner, I am despondent. I've tried so hard to protect my parents, but I have failed. My body feels slammed, deflated, every fiber defeated. Later that evening, my father apologizes, and I do too. The reason I get upset about you going out is that if you were exposed to the virus, you will die, I tell my parents. My mother's eyes widen. No, we won't. Shaking her head, she's unaware of the crisis. In her pink bathrobe with her fluffy white hair, she looks like an Easter peep. 
Yes, Nancy's right, my father informs her soberly. You don't have to worry about me. Here's the car key. I'm relieved, but the next day, I overhear my father on the phone telling my sister that I was upset when he went to Patwell's because I don't think he should drive. He has forgotten the virus again. The moment with his wallet and the driver's license comes back to me. Driving has long been part of his identity. Before we had GPS, he was a human one. Discovering and retaining innumerable routes and shortcuts on back streets, figuring out where landscapes lined up. A few days later, we ordered Chinese food for pickup. I let my father drive, figuring it will be good for his self-worth after staying home for a few weeks. The trip to the Chinese restaurant is a regular route, but he forgets where to turn a couple of times, and I have to prompt him. Perhaps my father conflated, conflated the virus with driving because he is actually scared that he shouldn't drive anymore. Am I losing the ability to intuit these kinds of connections? During this life in quarantine, have my senses dulled too? A couple of weeks after my father's escape to the candy store, I bring out an old boom box and play CDs. One is titled 70 Years of Broadway. We hear a singer crooning, I think of you night and day. Do you know who wrote this song, my mother asks? No, but I can look it up. I assume she's asking to help her remember. Cole Porter, she says, her eyes dark and knowing. For a minute, my mother is back, the cultured, intelligent woman, the former teacher and cultural coordinator, not a little old white-haired urchin subject to her most base desires for sweets. And my father also has some part of himself intact his sense of duty as a provider, which compelled him to secure sugar-free chocolate for his pre-diabetic partner. Though the virus is locking us down and upending our lives, it is also exposing our truths. I'm not sure if Patwell's ever shut down, but we have since been there a few times for ice cream this summer. It's really cute, family-run candy store that's been around forever. Walking inside is, opening, is like opening a portal to happiness with truffles and glass cases and bonbons displayed on red gingham tablecloths. Everything is made on the premises. There's even a glass booth where you can watch workers in aprons dip candy. It's one of my favorite places to visit around here, actually. The staff are always kind and patient with my parents, too. If they hadn't been open, my father may have gone to Walmart or Big Y or even Walgreens where he would have faced a much higher risk of exposure. As hard as I try to protect my parents, there's only so much I can control. Where I can't reach, faith will have to cover. Perhaps we're all dealing with some level of dementia as we don our masks and go about our day, plunging into the unknown, dealing with unknown, sorry, 
toggling fear, anger, and faith in various doses. I imagine how it must have felt for my mother when she parented me, confronted, confronted by faith on the flip side of her fear, flat and heavy like the dark, smooth belly of a ballooning, cumulus cloud, like night and day, day and night. Following the arrests of the riotous weathermen after the days of rage in 1969, our second storyteller finds herself in prison where reputations precede the inmates and communication is bangs, taps, and whispers through the ventilation system. Finding herself in a platonic relationship with a man named Cookie, the narrator grapples with her identity, the future of the revolution, and women's roles in both. Written by Charlotte Marchand and read for us here by Nancy Agavian, our second story is Cookie. I'm so excited uh, where Charlotte thinks she's done, but she is not uh, because she wrote the last story this evening. So we're going to pull her back into the spotlight and uh, to see what the, the Charlotte magic brew, what are your, what are your three items? Can you see? Ooh. Okay. I also have a tree here. Um, my tree represents Mother Nature because I was raised to believe in Mother Nature. And uh, as a that was our God, Mother Nature. And also I have some music notes here and it says Motown because I like to dance to Motown. Ooh. A little old school here and um, more ways than one. And also the other one is sharing stories. I like to hear other people's stories and I like to share mine. I'm famous for asking people what high school they went to and what their parents did for a living. But anyway. Nice. I'll have to remember that. Can you put the whole thing just into the screen for one final moment? We've heard everything. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much, Charlotte. You're welcome. Uh, and with that, our final story this evening is Cookie, written by Charlotte Marchand and read by Nancy Agabian. Cookie. My anger at America's involvement in the Vietnam War, along with my own need to belong to a community of kindred spirits, led to my joining the Radical Weatherman organization and their Chicago Days of Rage demonstrations in October 1969. I was 20 years old, running frantically from cops on horseback as I threw rocks at the plate glass windows of corporate America, which just bounced right back at me. It was the men in Weathermen who went right up to those windows and swung heavy metal chains that brought the glass crashing and showering down onto the sidewalk. I was in Weatherman, an organization whose name didn't even include me. My awareness of the feminist movement simmered on the back burner, not quite ready to come to a boil. When the cops first grabbed me, I felt terrified along with some relief. It was over. I had been caught and arrested for rioting along with others in Weatherman. I could stop running and at last get some rest. Being a revolutionary was exhausting. 
standing tall before the judge, stretching to be all five foot one inch of myself, I said what I had memorized earlier with as strong a voice as I could summon. Your Honor, I'm not guilty. The United States government is guilty of killing innocent Vietnamese people and using poor and third world Americans as cannon fodder. He decided otherwise, pronounced me guilty, and sentenced me to 30 days in Chicago's Cook County Jail. Arriving at the jail, I heard the echoes of jail life. I heard male inmates shouting messages from one cell to another. Hey, Carlos, man, your boy Tito was brought in last night. They gave him 60 days for possession, man. He's strung out real bad, hanging over the fucking toilet, throwing up all night. Got the shakes today. He's real fucked up. At the woman's section on the jail's top floor, I was handed a scratchy gray blanket, a tin plate, a spoon, and a stiff yellow faded dress uniform. The guard then took me to my seven by eight foot cell containing a metal bed, sink, and toilet. I sat on my bed trying to take in what would be my new reality for 30 days. I was thankful my time had an end date, aware that wasn't the same for others. Any fear I had about being in jail slowly left when I entered the day room where we were cheered by the women inmates gathered there. They had been watching the demonstrations on the news and were very curious to learn more about the crazy white people rioting in the streets. It was in the day room shared by the women inmates that I first heard the knocks on the, shet, on, on the sheet metal walls. Boom, slap, boom, from the male inmates on the floors below. It was a form of inner jail communication the inmates had created to maintain some sense of control over their lives. Sometimes the knock was made with force using the side of a fist, boom, or with an open hand slap, or with knuckles making a tap. Like playing a conga drum, different beats were created. Tap, slap, tap, boom, in different rhythmic patterns. Boom, tap, slap, tap, and then assigned as a phone number and memorized. If the woman who was being called wasn't around, the other woman shouted through the cell block to let her know her man was on the phone. She returned her knock pattern and went to the cells to answer the call. Everyone knew each other's phone numbers. When a woman was called, she went to the prearranged cell that was above the one her male caller was in, one to three floors below. Laying down some blankets on the hard, cold concrete floor, she got comfortable and spoke into the sides of the vents where the sheet metal walls met in an angle and there was just enough space to feel a small draft. These phone calls sometimes went on for hours. Some callers were just friends. Others became lovers. Many of the women had more than one lover and used aliases with different personalities depending on who was calling. They put one guy on hold and ran to another cell to talk to someone else. 
One night, Rita, an inmate whose thick brown arms were scarred from years of drug use, had arranged with a sympathetic guard to be locked in a cell with the clearest sounding vents. It was going to be a big night for Rita and her lover, Raymond. She had gotten a glimpse of his fine and muscular body through the day room window when she saw him below emptying trash in the yard. Boom, boom, slap, she called him for their date. My cell was directly across from the one Rita had chosen for the night. After the guard made her evening rounds, Rita carefully set up her blanket and pillow on the cold floor. Soundproofing being what it was, we all heard everything without even trying. Rita stretched out on the blanket and put her ear to the cold metal. Soon Raymond's voice traveled up the three floors and her body was warm again. Rita told him how much she loved him and began to describe the pleasures she would give him, if only she could. She placed her hand between her legs and did for herself what we could all only imagine Raymond said he would have done. Her passionate moaning filled the jail cells. Rita was making love for all of us. I lay on my bed under the scratchy gray blanket watching through the bars as snow flurries fell. I listened to Rita and only imagined what Raymond was saying and doing. During the ritual, I was like an eavesdropper invading her privacy and eventually I felt turned on. Rita had several different phone callers. Some were friends and others became lovers. Her friend Cookie, who she used to run numbers with in Chicago, told her he wanted to meet one of the women in Weathermen. Those of us remaining in jail met and I was chosen to be the contact. I was a little nervous the night of our first call. Since it seemed that most of the relationships over the vents were sexual, I was afraid of Cookie's expectations of me. My growing awareness of my own sexuality had just started emerging that year. I still felt shy enough about the sounds, smells, and tastes of it all in private to even imagine having a public showing like Rita's of the night before. My sexual interest and experience with women was just getting started. The sexual freedom encouraged in the Weatherman collectives allowed me to explore my bisexuality. It was a year later that I cut my long dark hair short, declaring myself a lesbian. In the midst of all these sexual awakenings, I plan to keep my relationship with Cookie on a purely cerebral level. Our knock was tap, tap, boom, tap. He rang, I returned the knock and went to my cell. Cookie reassured me that he wanted to have only political dialogue. When I replied right on, he was delighted and asked me to say it again. He said, never heard a white girl talk that way before. He was in jail for armed robbery, awaiting trial facing up to 10 years. He liked the Black Panthers and was against the war in Vietnam. Cookie wanted to talk every evening after the news and discuss what we had heard. Whenever I'd say right on or power to the people, which I said a lot in those days, he laughed with pleasure and asked me to say it again. 
Sometimes he called just to hear me say it. I was relieved to keep the conversation on this level, avoiding any possibility of sexual talk. One night I heard his call, tap, tap, boom, tap, and didn't answer because I was too busy discussing political theory from Chairman Mao's Little Red Book with my comrades. Tap, tap, boom, tap, he continued knocking for me most of the evening. Tap, tap, boom, tap, 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 boom, tap. He eventually called Rita, who relayed the message that Cookie was pissed off and wanted me to return his calls. When I did call him back, he yelled in a stern voice, you have to answer when I call, and who do you think you are anyway? Well, I told him a thing or two about my priorities. I don't have to come when anybody calls me unless it's a person in uniform, and what's power to the people all about anyway? He eventually calmed down and said I was right. It was just that he looked forward to our daily talks and was disappointed when I wasn't there. So we resumed our nightly discussions with the understanding that I wasn't always available to answer his calls. We argued about the right time to make revolution in this country. He thought it was years away, if at all. Well, I was positive it was only a matter of months as the last days of my sentence were drawing near, Cookie got news from his lawyer that he might be released sooner. His conversation turned to everything he'd do when he got out. I know the perfect restaurant to take you to. Soft music, candlelight, and wine. I told Cookie, hold on there. It sounds like you have expectations that we already talked about not having. He told me, I couldn't help it. I've fallen in love with you. I'm in love with your mind. I never even asked you what you look like and don't even want to know. He almost got me there until I remembered Rita probably shared my description with him. He said he loved my thoughts and ideas. I want us to be together so I can hear you say right on and power to the people for the rest of my life. I told him that I wasn't planning to spend time going to candlelit restaurants, that my life was dedicated to the revolution. He was glad I wanted to change the world, but he was convinced that when we met at that restaurant, he'd turn my head around and I'd relax a little and see things his way. The night before my release, I laid in my cell, thinking about saying goodbye to Cookie. I was already missing our evening news analysis and the bobbing and weaving I had to do to avoid the sexual innuendo, which seemingly came out of nowhere. In the middle of talking about the pros and cons of nonviolence, Cookie suddenly said things like, I bet you like taking hot baths with scented candles all around. And he was right, I did. On that last morning, I knocked tap, tap, boom, tap, and sadly said, right on, and power to the people, to Cookie through the vents for the last time. Years later, when it was apparent that the revolution was not right around the corner, I ran into a male friend who had been in Cook County Jail. I asked if he had met Cookie there. He said everyone knew and respected Cookie. He heard that he'd been sentenced to 10 years. Timidly, I asked him what Cookie looked like. 
He told me that Cookie was a man who had been around. I had already known about the scar across his cheek from the knife fight in his teenage years, but I hadn't known that Cookie was well over 70 years old. Now I could begin to understand why Cookie had a vision of the future that included so much more patience than mine. All the time we had spent talking through the vents, along with the bravado and sexual innuendo, he had tried to teach me that my dreams for revolutionary change take lots of work and especially time. A lesson, now that I am in my 70s, I thought I could finally hear. But the sounds of the young people taking to the streets shouting, Black Lives Matter, are calling to me. Maybe there's no time to waste and the revolution is now. But where do I fit in? I once belonged to a band of novice warriors and now the only tiger in me is my sneakers. And on these marches, even those sneakers can't carry me across the bridges to Manhattan and back to Brooklyn. This pandemic has taken its toll on my body and my spirit. And sometimes I am a weary, worried warrior, afraid of the virus, feeling replaced by the youth without time on my side. Now I watch from afar, listening to their righteous chants, and I shout out to them in as strong a voice as I can summon. Right on! Power to the people! That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.